Well, thank you for reading this psalm this morning, Nick. Breaking away from the Acts, although the way you read that is really exciting to my wife was saying on the way home, did you hear the way he read the Acts? I said, yeah, I was there. <laughs> and she said it was so good. It was just really enthusiastic, and I just got a lot out of it. Well, we're in Psalm 102 this morning, and I had Nick read it because there's 28 verses, and we're not going to be looking at all of the verses, and I've actually sorted some of the verses out that go together because it's sort of broken up a little bit in the psalm, and um, I think it'll, it'll make a lot of sense to you the way I've put it together. So the title of the psalm is A Psalmist's Lament and Meditation Regarding God's Relationship to His Suffering, to the Psalmist's Suffering. And so in terms of an introduction, uh, I think that the Lament Psalms give us three permissions. In general, the Psalms are recorded words of the things that men say to God. Psalm 102 is a Lament Psalm, and in the Lament Psalms, in a sense, God is giving His church permission to express to God exactly how they feel. In fact, one author said that in the Lament Psalms, there's an intense honesty that can run as close to blasphemy as one can imagine within the context of prayer. Ellen F. Davis noted, the Lament Psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. And in the Lament Psalms, and I was looking at those again this week, there's often special attention paid to the dark side of life in faith. And we have that in spades here in Psalm 102, but there is a happy thought in this psalm, even though it is kind of brutal. And as I reread through the Psalms this week, I see authors crying out against some unfortunate condition or circumstance that has arisen in their lives. And oftentimes they don't know why they are experiencing this unfortunate circumstance. But the circumstance itself doesn't seem to be the reason for their lamenting. The awareness of this unfortunate circumstance leads them to mourning and grieving to God. But the mourning and grieving isn't about the occurrence of the circumstance, but the fact that they feel suddenly disoriented from God because of the circumstance. And that's exactly what we see here in Psalm 102. In fact, that's the author's biggest fear in Psalm 102. Not that he's experiencing emotional strife or pain, but that the pain and affliction that he's experienced might mean that God's relationship with him has changed. And so he's motivated to explain the trouble that he's having to God with a humble and blunt identification of what he thinks is wrong, asking God for help in light of who he understands God to be and what his promises have always been. 
And that then returns the psalmist to begin trusting God, where he's reminded of God's covenant promises to us as his children, which begins to reorient you to have confidence in his character again, in spite of the experience that you're having. And so lament is a form of prayer that talks to God about our pain, and the talking to him about our pain is what enables us to come back into a state of trusting and relying on him. And so we need to be honest about what our issue is with God. And so we see lament psalms ultimately resolving themselves into prayers of hope, as they remind us again that it's God's care that sustains us and protects us as we live that life of faith that can often be surrounded by dark circumstances. But there's a catch that's evident in Psalm 102. How then will you talk to God when you recognize that God is sovereign in your afflictions? We don't have time to look at all of the scriptures that suggest that truth, that God is sovereign in our afflictions, but you could go back and look on your own in the book of Lamentations. Virtually every chapter has verses that say that God is at the heart of our affliction. You could read Psalm 88 because that's very similar to Psalm 102, which describes the same thing. And there's one more from the book of Job that I wouldn't want to miss. Remember at the end of Job, who was not privy to the introductory conversation between Satan and God, that the inspired text says in chapter 42:11, and they, his friends, consoled Job and comforted him for all the adversities that Yahweh had brought on him. Get that? Not all the adversities that Satan had brought on him, and not even all the adversities that Yahweh allowed for him to have. These were adversities that Yahweh himself had brought upon Job. And here's my point. When we suffer affliction and adversity, we shouldn't seek to save God from his sovereignty. Because as we'll see at the end of Psalm 102, it it's God's absolute sovereignty and eternality that we depend on and cherish so much in those very times of our suffering. It's because we know that God is sovereign that the psalmists come to him in their prayers of lament. So to try to soften God's involvement with our suffering by reducing it to a mere permission rather than a definite ordinance is to weaken the spine-strengthening power that's supplied by the Scriptures that tell us, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, I have an outline there for you, and I'm trying to follow along pretty closely. In this psalm, we can see that afflictions can seem otherworldly. Let me suggest that Psalm 102 is a detailed description of this author's personal affliction 
in almost haunting detail. In fact, the author describes his affliction so hauntingly that I'm convinced that he's really disoriented from God because of it. His astonishment at the level of his affliction leads me to think that for him, this experience is completely out of the ordinary. In fact, the best way to describe this affliction might just be to call it otherworldly from the psalmist's point of view. You get the sense that for this author, there's something unnerving and sensational about his particular affliction. Perhaps it's even accompanied by a troubling sense of awe and mystery and longing that causes him to wonder about the apparent severity of it. Let me explore this idea with you a little deeper. When I read this, I think that for this author, there's something even divinely mysterious and providential that he senses about his affliction. And I don't think you can arrive there without first being in an intimate relationship with God. This is a man that I'm thinking to myself is deeply intimate through prayer with God, and now he suspects something is wrong because of the way he's been afflicted. I sense that his description of his affliction is so unusual for him. It's so out of the ordinary, so unexpected, that it even has a taint of fear in it, perhaps. Because of its arresting and stunning wonder to him. It's as if his meditating on his affliction is awakening him to a renewed sense of God's mysterium tremendum et fascinans. That, that's that Latin phrase that means to tremble with fascination at something. A mystery that deeply attracts you, but at the same time it kind of repels you and causes you not to want to get too close. A mystery, perhaps, that you long to look into to get a deeper glimpse of God's being and purpose while at the same time being cautious not to look too long. It's almost as if in the recognition of the degree of his affliction, he's been awakened to consider a new understanding of God's character and being that he didn't understand before. So let's look at the psalm in the New King James translation. First, the title is A Prayer of the Afflicted When He's Overwhelmed and Pours Out His Complaint Before the Lord. It's the pouring out of his trouble that's the result of him meditating on his affliction. We shouldn't think of the English translation of the word complaint as the author simply coming to God, whining and grumbling about his circumstance. That's how we normally understand the word complaint. But the Hebrew word translated as complaint also means musing. The word is often translated as meditates in the Old Testament. 
He seems to be daydreaming and pondering about his affliction. The author's having a conversation with himself about the level of his affliction he's experiencing and the circumstances of it. And his prayer is brought forth to God because he's pondering his curious condition and what it might imply. And then we see that his meditation actually commands God's attention in the first two verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. In the day that I call, answer me speedily. When he prays, hear my prayer, incline your ear to me and answer me speedily, these are all commands. And there's this expectation that God must hear his prayer, must bend down closer as to not misunderstand it, and then hurry to give him the answer. In other words, Yahweh, take my complaint seriously. Don't just casually listen as if I'm just one of the many noises out there clamoring for your attention. Don't listen as if you're preoccupied with something else. And my musing is just getting in the way of more serious matters for you. Hear my prayer with intention and interest and understanding that I know that you have for me because of my relationship to you in prayer. Let my plea for understanding come into your presence. Don't conceal yourself from me. That's what he's saying in the first couple of verses. And in his poetic musing here, he begs God, not to hide his face from him. God hiding his face from someone in the Old Testament has serious implications. And God might be hiding his face from you for any number of different reasons. And that's what leads to his reflecting on his circumstances. Why is this happening when I have such a relationship with him? At the heart of it, it means when you hide your face from me, it suggests that you might have withdrawn your favor from me. When God hides his face, it could mean that God will no longer protect you from the many evils and troubles in the world. Kind of like Israel going into battle without the Ark of the Covenant. It's like, sorry, God isn't with you. You're not going to win. Most of all, hiding his face implies that he's not currently present with you, and the intimacy of your relationship with him has been interrupted, and it's concerning for you. And that leads you to wonder whether God has perhaps seen some faithlessness in your actions, perhaps even unbeknownst to you. We get the clear idea in Psalm 102 that he doesn't know why he's so afflicted. Have I unknowingly become indifferent to God somehow? 
Have I put my trust in something other than God himself? Is that the reason? But think of what it means to even recognize that God may be hiding his face from you and that your previous intimacy with God might now be severed. It implies that you know him well. You have a relationship with him in prayer. And you know something is wrong. In fact, his meditation in verses 3 through 7 tells him that something is wrong. There's that connective particle of the word for that begins in verse 3 that gives us the reason why the author has said everything in the first two verses. He's commanding these things of God because something isn't right. Look at the way he details the physical description of his affliction in verses 3 through 5. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, trying to put this together. This isn't quite exactly the same thing as saying that, you know, things aren't quite going the way I want them to. No. It's not, you know, I woke up this morning and I threw my legs over the side of the bed and I felt like I was coming down with something. No. This is really serious. He's saying, my life is failing. It's all used up. It's run its course. I feel like I'm finished. Even my bones feel like they're on fire. When was the last time you thought your bones were on fire? Seriously. Would you ever describe yourself as, my bones are on fire? My heart has been fatally wounded. My strength is gone. You know, I even stopped caring if I should eat or not because it, not only does it not taste good to me, but it doesn't make any difference to me anymore. I'm so busy groaning about my pitiful condition and forgetting to eat that I'm just skin and bones. Anyone who looks at me can tell I'm in a desperate situation. This is a person who's really troubled. And troubled isn't even the right word to describe his anxiety. That's the word for trouble used in verse 2. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble or distress. The, the word trouble means to be cramped or in dire straits so that one felt as though he were surrounded by danger because of his complete loss of intimacy with God. He seems to be so distraught about what's going on that he's now pouring out. It's spilling forth his meditation. It's just gushing out of him before the Lord. He's so overwhelmed and distraught in his affliction that he's ready to burst if he doesn't get some answers immediately as to what's going on. Please answer me. Don't 
leave me like this. This guy's reality has moved into another dimension, I would say, because of his affliction. We're not talking simply body aches here, like the flu. We're talking otherworldly distress and affliction that looks like death is looming. And he's kind of retreating into isolation and loneliness because of his depression. God hiding his face from him in the Old Testament is cause for the beginning of great loneliness as he depicts here in verse, verses 6 and 7. It's a little bit odd. He compares himself to three types of birds. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I lie awake. And I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. You know, the Psalms are essentially poetry set to music, but still it's kind of an unusual metaphor. In his affliction, he sees himself as a couple of unclean birds that hang out in places of ruin in the desert, describing this wretched loneliness he feels when he's separated from God. And I thought to myself, is he wandering around and he happens to look out in the desert and he sees a pelican there and he says, you know, that's how I feel. I see a bird up on the rooftop all by itself and I think, that's me. Folks, can you even imagine describing yourself as being in a state the way he's describing himself in this psalm? It starts to become pretty obvious, I think, that he knows this level of affliction is so far from normal and so far out of the ordinary that he begins to sense that God has his hand in it. And then we see that his meditation can't ignore God's sovereign ordering of his affliction. Back in verse 4, where he says, my heart is stricken and withered like grass, is literally, your affliction has blighted my heart. Surely stressing the influence of God. And then with that little conjunction of the word for at the beginning of verse 9, he's saying, Lord, do you know why my enemies taunt me? and deride me and use my name for a curse. They approach me, reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. Later on, he says, he weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. It's as if he's saying, I was just going about my life, thinking everything was okay. My relationship to you was intact. The notion of being disoriented from you never crossed my mind. And in midstream, in your providence and in your omnipotent power, you weakened me 
You broke my strength. You afflicted me. And for the life of me, I don't know why. So we see the author is reflecting on his affliction, and his main concern seems to be that God not hide his face from him. But think about what this implies. This is important. It implies that he knows the difference. He knows when his intimacy with God is intact, and he knows when it isn't intact. He knows what happens when God hides his face from men, and that leads to a sense of fear about what that could imply. And now we're getting to the heart of it. When his intimacy with God isn't intact, he knows something is wrong, and he knows he'd better move quickly to find out what the remedy is. And it seems like the only reasonable attitude toward his misfortune and affliction is to recognize a few things. When human beings find themselves in dire straits and narrow circumstances with no certain answers as to why afflictions or misfortune might be happening, we have to realize the limitations of our human understanding. We have to. We're not going to turn on God. And maybe that's part of the wake-up call for this psalmist, coming to terms with the immensity of our limitations and grasping how easily God's power causes me to recognize in my circumstances the reality of my limitations. So I said, I do have a happy thought here. To me, this means that we are free to live a life that is entirely optimistic and cheerful and rejoicing, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself experiencing when you realize that you are not in control. And that is precisely what we see here in Psalm 102 although it takes him a little while to get there. And even here in Psalm 102, where we have just the most detailed description of the extent of this author's affliction, the psalm encourages us to see through the momentary affliction to the eternality of God and subsequently to his eternal promises. So what are we to make of this? We do know that in Psalm 102, the author is crying out amidst what seems to be unexplained suffering and affliction brought about by God's hand. But of course, unexplained does not mean meaningless affliction. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering for the believer. And though this author can't explain his suffering, we believe all suffering. (coughs) Excuse me. We believe all suffering is ultimately explainable. 
We may not know the reasons for our current suffering, (coughs) but there are answers yet to come. Because in all of this, the author remembers above all else who God has always been to the people of Israel. And so the question the psalm seems to be begging us to consider is what is the only reasonable attitude toward incomprehensible misfortune other than to simply bow to the divine ordering of his affliction, whatever it might be. Now think about why I say that. Nowhere in the psalm is he defending himself. He's not trying to convince God that he's never done anything shameful. He's not justifying himself here, complaining that he doesn't deserve to be treated this way. He's not pulling out the victim guard and showing it to God. Hey, you're making me a victim. We don't know why he's been so deeply afflicted. There's no confession of sin as there is usually in the Lament Psalms. Yet on the other hand, neither is he professing that he's righteous and faultless. And that this shouldn't be happening to him. He's he's not saying anything like that. Nowhere in the Psalms do we see that these kinds of afflictions are somehow written off as coming from some kind of impersonal fate out in the cosmos. The author is convinced that these afflictions are clearly the result of God's personal actions towards him. And there's no comment that God is suddenly unleashing some random malicious hatred or sinister power upon the individual just for the sake of being vindictive. So what are we to make of this? Even when there's no intelligible human justification for the affliction, he's not even attempting to try to make it sound like this is some kind of demonic source. What we do see over and over again with instances like this in the Scriptures is that the author's response to his afflictions are often understood to be simply the manifestation of God's unsearchable greatness. And that is why comprehending the affliction that comes from his hand is so far above human conception. Look, even in the incomprehensible afflictions, there's no calling into question whether God is still divinely majestic. He isn't any less perfectly just, holy, and righteous because the afflictions that he ministers to his children are sometimes kind of intense. Nowhere is the nature of his character distorted into some diabolically savage anger that he might be housing. 
most startling of all and most assuring to us is that none of those afflictions ever wander away from the author's belief in God's divine and eternal loving kindness towards us either. And that's the true understanding of that Latin phrase, mysterium tremendum et fascinans. To tremble before God in fascination, in awe. Wasn't Robin talking about that this morning? A mystery that deeply attracts you, but repels you at the same time, because all you can come to terms with is that God is way outside the bounds of our understanding way outside. And even when these dreadful afflictions are attributed to God, there's no lessening of the psalmist's confidence in the absolute certainty of God's readiness to comfort, readiness to minister and to protect his people when we think back to our relationship with him and his relationship with Israel. That is simply the standard resolution in the Lament Psalms, and that is how Psalm 102 is resolved as well. Now, it's true that God might seem less than eager to rescue him right now. None of these truths about God's sovereignty and our afflictions exclude a continued belief in God's divine loving kindness toward his covenantal people, though. The fact that the author holds on to God's greatness and majesty as he concludes his prayer, even in the midst of great suffering and affliction, reminds us that God is simply beyond the reach of human apprehension. And the way you get through this is simply by talking to him about the trouble and embracing an attitude of wondering adoration. Because that's what he does at the end of the psalm. Folks, you can't make the divine power and mystery of God manageable by applying human reason to it. This is why living a life of faith is so challenging for so many people. So many people want it all tied up with a nice little theological ribbon. And you're certainly not going to get that in Psalm 102. This is kind of like, to me, what we saw last week when Jesus reveals his power and authority over nature. You simply must find yourself worshiping the incomprehensible greatness of God, our Creator, by humbly resigning yourself to the truth that in all of this, we are left with simply being in awe of Him. Well, there is a way to find your way back to normal. Even though the author of Psalm 102 is in a wretched state, it seems, there's an expectation that God not only knows how to deal with it, but is going to help him find his way back to normal again. And this notion of finding one's way back to normal with God in the midst of affliction and suffering is the key element in all of the lament psalms. They always wind up looking for hope. 
As is typical of the Lament Psalms, the author finds comfort not in the immediate remedy of the affliction, but in the recognition of the security he has because of God's eternality. And I kind of combine verses 12 and 24 through 27. He says, Because you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. How many times have we heard that in in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's verse 27. Verse 27 says, but you are the same. The original word for the same in verse 27 is literally just the word he. He's saying, but you are he. That is, you are the eternal. You are necessarily eternal. And consequently, you are necessarily unchangeable and imperishable. The Hebrew word idea appears to mean you are he who has permanent existence, who exists eminently, expressing God's eternal and unchangeable nature. And so remembering that God exists eternally means he cannot be separated from his eternal covenant promises. God always remembers the imposition of the obligation he has placed on himself in his relationship to Abraham. So when God is talking about covenant, it's shorthand for, this is my promise to save you and to give you eternal life. The covenant is the preservative factor for all those who believe. When God says, I will establish my covenant, he means, I will set my covenant in operation so that nothing will affect it in any way that could ultimately thwart it. And we're going to see the beauty of the promise of God's covenant with believers in the details of Psalm 105 next week. It seems like the psalmist is just remembering that throughout all the psalms and all the writings, always we have before us a reminder of the truth of God's holiness, the truth of his absolute otherness, the truth of his transcendence over all creation, his everlasting majesty and strength, his compassion and his mercy all of which are held up for believing covenantal children as our ultimate security, no matter what our present circumstances are. And that's where the psalmist goes at the end of the psalm. And so the blessing comes full circle in the realization that God is not some catastrophic character, 
but the divine Lord of his faithful people. God applies his power on their behalf because he is in covenant with them. This is so evident as well in Psalm 105. And so even though man draws near to God in awe and trembling, there's the deep-seated acknowledgement that he remains kind and loyal and ready to comfort, relieve, and protect. His power is also capable of giving and promising eternal life to all who believe. And even in the expression of our complete brokenness before God, the words of the psalmists are designed to set us free, to live a life then filled with love and wonder and deep reflection and submission as to the reality of the person of God, even in the midst of affliction. And ultimately, the lament psalms show us the value in choosing to move toward a disposition in life that is entirely optimistic and cheerful, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in each day. Well, the last point there is that God's promise is fulfilled in the person of Emmanuel. I think you'll find it curious how I got there, but listen what he says in Psalm 102. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary, from the heaven the Lord viewed the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Now, there's something curious there, because nowhere in this psalm is praise coming from this author's lips. He doesn't utter any praise. The affliction recorded here in Psalm 102 is recorded so that the people that came after the author in future generations could praise the Lord. And it's not recorded so we can argue with God about anything or challenge God's wisdom or his existence or the way he chooses to glorify himself or question whether his motives in delving out affliction can really make him a good God. That's not why it's recorded. They are written so we can praise him. Well, how does that work? You know why future generations are going to praise God? Think about this. Because the author foresees what he knows the covenant-keeping God is obligated to do. That he hasn't done yet, but he knows he's going to. He knows that he must do because of who he is. And there's the tension of the blessing and the terror of being a child of the covenant. God is going to be moved in spite of his moral perfection 
and his complete unapproachable holiness and purity from every other created thing, to hear with interest and compassion and concern the misery of his sinful people, so he can set them free from their inevitable death, so that they will declare and praise all the characteristics of his divine name. When all of his believing children from all the nations are gathered together to worship him way into the future. And I thought to myself, you know, that sounds really familiar to Zechariah's prophecy about his son John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. This is what it says there. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And then he says, For you, child, John, will go before the Lord the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high shall visit us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's us, by the way. To guide our feet into the way of peace. That is such a great word, episkeptomai, for, the, word, for the, the phrase, shall visit us. Here is the fulfillment of the author's reason for all future generations to praise God. He knew God would hear the groans of the prisoners and set free those who were doomed to die because of their sin. And this is the promise that all generations have who have faith in God. That word episkeptomai means to inspect and examine with the eyes. God is in heaven looking down, saying, I know the solution for this problem. The author of Psalm 102's promise and reason for praise is that God in his holiness and perfection and power and his mercy would look down from his heavenly and his holy habitation and be attentive to the afflictions and the groanings of his people. He was as sure, this psalmist, that this would happen as he was sure that it, he had been deeply afflicted, afflicted by the hand of God. The author of Psalm 102 knew God would hear the groans of his people and rescue them from their pending death because of their sin. His visitation to us would bring his care and his provision and benefit and blessing to all who believe. Oh, don't forget the blessing that's always promised to come, even in the midst of groaning afflictions. to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for these challenging words this morning in our hearts. Long to know you better because of what's been stated here by this psalmist. We pray that we would be caused to reflect deeply on this psalm this morning and in days to come. That we would be blessed because of our time here this morning. That we would be more encouraged to lift up your name and your power and your mercy and your grace to us. That we would see you more clearly and be more challenged to share with the world who you are because of what we've been through this morning in, in this song. And we ask you this in Christ's name. Amen.